here. That means you are not a child. And uh, I invite you to go ahead and turn to the book of Matthew. Today, we start a brand new preaching series, and we're going to begin in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, and it's the first of the four Gospels. You might say, well, well, what is the gospel? Well, gospels are a selective biography about the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I, I say selective because each one's written by a different author and with a little bit different purpose. For example, Mark will, will focus on Jesus as the suffering servant. Luke will focus on the humanity of Jesus and continually refer to him as the son of man. John will focus on the fact that Jesus is the very Son of God. If you kind of think of it like this, uh, think of uh, two people, uh, and they're both looking at a sunset. One person stands on the Pacific coast, and they see all the, the pinks and the oranges and, and the reds as the, as the sun dips into the ocean, and the other one is hiking in the Olympic range. And he also sees the pinks and the oranges and the reds, and yet he sees the sun slowly descend behind the mountains. Both see the same sunset. They see the colors, they see the vividness, and yet from their different perspectives, they will describe it slightly differently. And that's a little like what the Gospels will do. As each of them are looking at the life of Jesus, they're going to emphasize just a little bit different things for the purposes in which they want to communicate. And so Matthew is the first gospel uh, arranged in the New Testament. If you don't know, Matthew was a tax collector. This means he worked for the Roman government, and thus he was despised by the Jewish people. In fact, uh, the fact that he is a disciple is by grace. Jesus calls him to follow him, to be a disciple, to which he then travels with Jesus, and he's an eyewitness of the entire ministry of Jesus Christ. And so we're, we're going to begin looking at this series, and we're going to make our way through all 28 chapters of this book, not today, but throughout, uh, for a while we'll be here. Um, so you might ask, why? Why are we going to start in Matthew? Why, why a gospel? Why should we want to read this book? Well, number one, we just need to remember, Matthew is inspired by the Spirit to write this for our benefit. And if that was all that we had, that would be sufficient This letter, this word, this gospel is inspired for us so that we would know Jesus. Number two, Matthew helps us understand who Jesus is, what he accomplished, what it means to truly not only believe in him, but to follow him. And I would say if you're an unbeliever here, if you've not yet trusted in Jesus, stay with us in this series. We're going to be looking at who Jesus is, looking at the claims that he made what it means that he's the son of David, what it means that he's a king, what it means that he goes to the cross and rises from the grave, and how does that impact not only us, but the entire world. So I invite you to come, understand why we love Jesus and why we worship Jesus. Matthew also is written to strengthen our faith, increase our hope, and to send us out into the world to proclaim the gospel. One thing we'll see as we make our way through this book is that Matthew was written to Jews primarily, but for the purpose of the message to be taken globally. And so when we talk about gospel, it's good news, but it's good news meant to be proclaimed. So the truths that we come in this, in this book 
are the truths that you need, the truths that I need, and the truths that the world needs to know about Jesus Christ. So before we dig in, it's good to just remember how the Old Testament ends. Malachi is, is the last book arranged in, in our Bibles in the Old Testament. And after the book of Malachi, there was no new revelation that was given from God to the people of Israel for about 400 years. So there's this great time of silence. Israel is now under Roman rule. They're not free. And there's many, many promises and prophecies yet to be fulfilled in the Old Testament. And the primary hope of the people of Israel, of a remnant, is that God would one day send a king. And this king or this Messiah figure would come and he would free them from foreign rule and restore them into being a powerful nation. And what Matthew wants to do is he wants to show Jesus, Jesus is the king that we've been waiting for, and Jesus is the one who has come to rescue his people. But Matthew also wants us to see Jesus is a far greater king with a far greater mission than anyone was expecting. What we're going to see today is that Jesus is the promised king who rules the nations forever in perfect righteousness. And so we're going to start and the part that you all love, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So I want to invite you to go ahead and stand, and we are going to read Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Each week we stand when we read the scriptures. We do so as a means to remind ourselves that this word comes to us with the full authority of God, inspired by the Spirit, to build us up and to encourage us and equip us to live a godly life. So here we go, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And just so you know, every name I say, I say right. Because <laughs> you don't know if I say it wrong. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram the father of Minadab, and Minadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Solomon, and Solomon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asap, Asap the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, Joram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad, Abiad, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let me pray. 
Father, we come to you now in the name of Jesus. And Father, we thank you that we can gather this morning as your church. And Father, we thank you for the Christmas season. God, we've already sung songs announcing your birth. Our, our room is decorated with a, with a means of reminding us of your birth. God, we celebrate the fact that your son Jesus was born into this world. He's come to save us from our sins and to be the king for everlasting. God, open up our eyes today that we would see the wonder of the gospel in the book of Matthew. May this book shape the way we see and understand the gospel. Give us ears to hear, to hear the message and the truths from your word. God, increase our faith. Strengthen our hope. Solidify our resolve to share the good news of Jesus Christ. God, help us to taste and see the goodness today that your son has been born. He came as king to rule. In your name, Jesus Christ, amen. You all may be seated. I don't know if there's any coffee cups with these verses on them, but there should be. I know we're all excited when we come to genealogies. Now, who here is ever guilty of skipping the genealogies when they come to the Bible? You just kind of go, you shouldn't do that. That's all I'll say. I'll never say I haven't said that I do it, but what I want you to see this morning is that, is that Matthew, Matthew is a treasure chest, and in this genealogy, Matthew is opening up the treasure chest, and these are the jewels on the top. These are the first jewels that we see, and, and Matthew is inviting us to lift up these precious stones of the genealogy, and as we do that, he's saying, dig in. There's more to come. Dig in. The treasure is rich. It's more than you could ever, ever expect. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to make our way through, uh, through this chapter, and cha verse 1 is going to kind of frame the way we go through. So I just want to first talk about the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Matthew wants us to know he's writing about the life of Jesus. Now the word Jesus means God saves. The word Christ is not Jesus' last name, as, as many of us think that it is, because we always just say Jesus Christ. But it means anointed one. In Hebrew, the word would be Messiah. And this Messiah or Christ figure is one Israel was hoping that would come and rescue them from foreign rule. They're the one that they wanted to come as king. And Matthew is determined that we would know Jesus is the king sent by God to save his people. The whole gospel revolves around the idea of king and kingdom. In fact, let me just, let me just give a few examples here. The word king appears 22 times in the gospel of Matthew. And when Jesus begins his ministry, in chapter 4, verse 17, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, meaning it is here. He's ushering in the very kingdom of God. Matthew is a very structured gospel, which we'll look at as we go through the next couple of weeks. And Matthew has five primary teaching sections. Many of you know, like the Sermon on the Mount. And the majority of the teachings of Jesus all revolve around the kingdom. In fact, the last one, this genealogy also revolves around kingdom. I want you to think about it like this. For one, we have the royal line 
of Jesus is given here. So we're tracing the royal line all the way from David all the way to Christ that we would know Jesus is a descendant from David, the one who has come to rule. But also in verse 17, we're told that this genealogy is broken up into three sets of 14. Abraham to David, David to the deportation, and the deportation to Christ. So if we were to look at this in the, in the life of Israel, Abraham to David represents the rise and the birth of the kingdom. From David to the deportation is the decline of the kingdom. And from the deportation to Christ is, is really the fall of the kingdom. And so we have this life cycle of the kingdom right here portrayed in the genealogy that Matthew gives us. And it might cause us to go, wait, why was Israel conquered? Which is where, which is where Matthew ends on the genealogy. They've been deported. Why was Israel, Israel conquered? Why was the northern kingdom conquered by Assyria? Why was the southern kingdom conquered by Babylon? Why have they never truly been freed again? And ultimately, what we see is it's because, because of their sin. It wasn't because Babylon was stronger. It wasn't because Assyria was stronger. You see, in the genealogy, Matthew reminds us of the history of Israel. That's what he wants us to do. He wants us to remember where Christ came from. In fact, if you were to look at these names, the list of the genealogy is not a, a righteous pedigree of people. It's not the list we'd go, now, if I was to pick and choose... The genealogy in which Jesus, the son of God, the son of David, the son of Abraham would come and he'll rule the entire world. This isn't the genealogy that we would choose. Jacob was a deceiver. Tamar acted as a, as a prostitute to sleep with her father-in-law to obtain a son. Ruth was a Moabite, which was a despised people of God that worshiped pagan idols. Matthew refers to David's wife, Bathsheba, as the wife of Uriah, just as a means of reminding, remember, remember the woman she raped? Remember, remember the woman he raped and took? Rehoboam was foolish, and he's the one who caused the kingdom to split into a northern kingdom, into a southern kingdom. Ahaz was a wicked king who worshiped false gods. Manasseh practiced child sacrifice. Now, if we're honest, it might sound a little like your family tree. Every family line is full of sin. I remember when, when I was young, I was like, man, my, my family line's like perfect. Like, you, you know, remember when you had that, that beautiful vision of your family and you're like, man, why is my family normal? All the other families aren't. And then you get older and you realize they're not so normal and you realize you're not so normal. Sin. Sin was the problem of Israel this means Israel's biggest problem is not, is not Rome. They don't just need a change of circumstances. Israel just doesn't need to be freed from the Roman Empire. That's not what their biggest problem is. And sin is not our biggest problem either. We're really good at always pointing out there while ignoring the problem within our hearts. Israel's greatest need was not to be freed from Rome and once again be a superpower of a small geographical land area in the Middle East. Your greatest need is not simply more money, a better marriage, obedient children, cars at work, greater respect. 
or any of those physical circumstances that lie outside of us, our greatest need is for the sin within our hearts to be atoned for. What we need is a king, a king who can overcome the sinful rebellion within us. We need a king who can slay the dragon Satan and establish the everlasting righteous kingdom of God that will never be overcome by sin. We need a king who can overcome evil so we can live in peace, which makes us go, what, what kind of king can do that? And Matthew says, Jesus, Jesus is that king. Jesus is the king who's been promised all throughout the Old Testament. Remember the promises of Abraham. Remember the promise to David. Jesus is the king. So under these next two titles, we're, we're gonna dig in more to what it means that Jesus is this king. And so, so David, or so Matthew writes, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David. Now I would argue that the word son of David is the primary lens in which we're to read the entire gospel of Matthew. If you don't get these words, son of David, you're not going to understand a lot of the things and some of the main idea and the thrust of the way that Matthew writes. In fact, in fact, Matthew will read or will use the word son of David 10 times in his gospel, whereas, whereas Luke and, and Mark will only use it three times, and John will never use it even once. In fact, these, these first 17 verses stress the name David within the genealogy. Just think about this. Think about the frequency in which we see the name. Matthew begins, uh, Matthew mentions the name David five times in verses 1 through 17. The beginning, the middle, and the end. David is at the center of verse 1. He's also at the center of verse 17. The very position in which Matthew emphasizes, while the genealogy includes all, uh, many of the kings of Israel, it actually does include all of them. Matthew is selective. He, he's trying to make a point. But he, he includes many of the kings of Israel. But which king does he actually say is king? David. David is the only one, he emphasizes, and David is the king. And also we see the arrangement. We already saw this in verse 17 as we talked about it, that the arrangement of the genealogy is in three sets of 14. Which if you're like me, majority of Americans, we go, why? Like, why 14? Why not nine? Why not 12? Why not 13? Like, like can we just pick numbers here? Why three sets of 14? And it's important that he did this because, April, or because Matthew has left out certain names in order to emphasize three sets of 14. Now, a very common practice within Hebrew literature was called the, the gematria. And so this is not something that you and I do. So here's your little Hebrew lesson for the day is gematria is when you would give letters numerical value. And so like in, uh, in our alphabet, A would be one, B would be two, C would be three. Makes sense? Well, in the Hebrew alphabet's a little bit different. Now, there's no vowels. And so the word David is made up of three letters, D-W-D or Dalit, Wa, Dalit. And so Dalit would be the fourth letter, and Wa would be the sixth letter. And so you have four plus six plus four equals what? Some of you are like, I don't know. You <laughs> tell me it's going to be math day today. It's 14. If you need help, Caleb will help you. My son, he's a math genius. So what's the point? Matthew wants us to know the entire 
history of Israel. The entire movement of the Old Testament climaxes now with the birth of King Jesus. Everything has been coming so that Jesus would come as the son of David. He's saying this is not random. The entire Old Testament moves to this day. He's the promised king we've been looking forward to. Now you might say, is it though? Like are we reading too much into this? Why is being the son of David so incredibly important. Well, in 2 Samuel 7, God makes a covenant with King David. This covenant shapes all of the hopes and the entire narrative of the rest of the Old Testament in the very way that the New Testament begins. In fact, let me read 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. This is, this is the covenant that God makes with David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul when I put away, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now initially you might say, well, this was Solomon, right? He comes in and establishes... <clears throat> The Davidic throne and, and the, the name of Israel goes out to the nations under Solomon. We know Bathsheba, or we know, uh, I'm blanking on her name, the queen of Sheba. The queen, yeah, she comes and visits. Others come and, and visit Israel because of the greatness. And yet we see Solomon is sinful and he fails. And after that, the kingdom is split and he goes away. But Ever after this promise, Israel's waiting for the greater son of David who will come and rule forever. Verse 16 of this covenant says, your throne, referring to the son of David, will be established forever. As the kingdom of Israel declines and eventually is destroyed, the prophets in exile, they continually remind Israel, there's a promise. Remember, there's a king who's coming. Don't forget about the king. He's coming. God has not forgot about us. We need to wait for the king. In fact, let me give two examples in the Old Testament. One was already read for us earlier as we did Advent. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. You remember this one. For to us a child is born. A son is given. Now notice the emphasis. The government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of the hosts will do this. We're told that a king is coming from the line of David. And his peace will stretch out over all the land and it will not be overcome. Every action and every word he speaks will be righteous and will be just and his rule will last forever. That's what the people are hoping for. Jeremiah, who writes, before and during and after Israel goes into captivity by Babylon, this is what he writes in Jeremiah chapter 33. So remember, Israel 
Israel's in exile. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely, and this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Both these passages are written hundreds of years after the death of Jesus, and yet they speak our death of David, and yet they speak of a king who will come from the line of David, who will rule in righteousness and justice, and his throne will never, ever be taken away. It's because of this expectation when you fast forward to Matthew chapter 21, and remember, Jesus enters into Jerusalem. What is it that the crowd say? They shout out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Why do they shout this? This is the expectation that Israel has had for hundreds of years now. A king is coming from the line of David, rescuing us. And they believe at that moment in Matthew 29, Jesus is the son of David. Hosanna. And of course, a few days later, they will crucify him. Matthew wants us to know Jesus is, is the promised king. Like Joshua in the Old Testament. Remember Joshua brings Israel into the promised land so Jesus will come rescue his people and he'll bring them into the everlasting kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Now remember, Israel thinks Jesus has come to rescue them from Roman rule and to remove foreigners from the land of Israel, but their expectations are too small. Jesus' kingdom will not be limited to a, a small geographical plot of land. In fact, all throughout Matthew, he emphasizes the words kingdom of heaven. In fact, Matthew will use that phrase 32 times in the book of Matthew. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven. Just as heaven stretch out over all of creation, so Jesus' rule stretches out over all of creation. His perfect rule, his reign, his peace, and his government will have no end. In fact, in the life of Jesus, we see the picture and the perfection of the kingdom. Jesus comes and he, he raises the dead. He gives sight to the blind. He heals the lame. He casts out demons. He curses fig trees, commands the seas, teaches with incredible authority. All in the life of Jesus, we see the effects of sin in a sense being undone because in the kingdom of heaven there is no sin it's ruled in righteousness now it's worth noting that when jesus came and he he establishes the kingdom of god when he first came and today we the church and the global church we represent the rule and the blessing of god here on earth and yet it'll only be when jesus comes again in the second coming which Matthew will talk about, when Jesus will usher in the fullness of the kingdom. And at that time, all worldly kingdoms come to an end. At that time, there will be no more wars or rumors of war. At that time, sin will be forever vanquished. And only those who believe in Christ, who have bowed before King Jesus, will forever live in perfect righteousness in the kingdom of heaven. We have to realize that as Matthew is going to talk about Jesus as the king who has come, 
Jesus has not come to be a king among many kings. Jesus is the king. He's the only king. And he's the one who's created all things. And he is the one king who reigns supreme over all creation. He is the one who brings justice. He is the one who will right all wrongs. And we know that when we look at this world, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, we see that there's sin in this world. We see that there's things that are wrong. We see that there's evil in this world. Whether we look within our heart, our houses, our community, our country, the entire world, we know that no peace talk between sinful presidents, rulers, and dictators will actually satisfy peace in this world. There's nothing that we as as human rulers within our own wisdom, within our power can do to vanquish sin and actually bring in righteousness. There's one king, and it's Jesus. He'll reign forever, and he ushers in the kingdom of heaven with everlasting peace and everlasting righteousness. And that's what Matthew wants us to know. This brings up the question, who can be in the kingdom of heaven? This is where we come to the second title that Matthew gives us, the son of Abraham. So if if the son of David, if David was given a covenant by God that would shape the entire hope and narrative of God's people, there's one other covenant that's given to a person in the Old Testament that would also shape all of the hopes and expectations within the Old Testament in God's people, and that would be to Abraham. Abraham, like David, is one of the most significant people in the entire Bible. He's called the father of Israel. Abraham is found in the book of Genesis. What we see is in Genesis 1 and 2, Adam is created and Eve is created. They live in perfect harmony within the garden. But we see that when they sin and rebel against God, they're removed outside of the garden. And at that moment, we see sin spreads to all of humanity. And at Genesis 11, we see that there's a tower that's been built. Remember that tower? It's called the Tower of Babel. Babel. So you guys know that. You don't know math, but you know Babel. That's good. So there's the Tower of Babel. And at that moment, what's happening is, is all the people of the world, they're gathering to rebel against God, to build a tower for their name so that they can worship humanity and what they can achieve And so we have absolute rebellion against God. And Abram is a part of this. We see that in the book of Joshua, where Abram will be called, or Joshua judges, where Abram is called an idolater. But then we see that he's he's called by God in Genesis 12. God calls him, his name is Abram. Later his name will be changed to Abraham. And in Genesis 12, God makes a covenant, a promise with him. This is what he says. Let me read verses one, two, and three. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now there's, we spend a whole other sermon here. There's one thing I just want us to focus on. Look at verse 3. God says, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. You see, God is creating a people who will once again dwell with him in his presence. Adam and Eve were in his presence because of sin. They were removed from the garden. 
Now God unleashes his redemption plan where once again, people will live with him in his presence and experience his blessing. And he's gonna accomplish this through Abraham, in which the nation of Israel will come, in which there will be kings, in which we are told eventually there will be a king who will overcome sin, and he will be a blessing to all people in the world. And in verse 3, here in, in, in Genesis, ultimately is then pointing to Jesus Christ, who is the seed of Abraham, and in Jesus, all the nations will be blessed. That's the point of, of what God is doing um, as he calls Abraham. He's unleashing a redemption plan that will culminate in Jesus' coming so that at the name of Jesus being preached, people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and every language will come and be gathered around the throne room of God and worship him and enjoy him forever. God's plan has always included the nations. And while Matthew, and we'll see, Matthew has probably written his gospel primarily to Jews. There's a lot of Old Testament references in it. But the plan was never for it to only remain with the Jews. Remember, gospels are meant to be proclaimed. So Matthew wrote his gospel primarily to Jews so they would go to the nations proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see that in at least four ways in this genealogy, or four ways in the book of Matthew. Number one, the women in the genealogy. Now, it's strange that Matthew would even include women in the genealogy because women weren't even allowed to give their testimony in a court of law. It wasn't considered of any value at that time. But what's, not, what's, what's most striking is not only that he includes them, but that these women, at least four of them, are very likely Gentiles. Tamar is likely a Canaanite. Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho. Ruth was a Moabite. Bathsheba, remember, she marries Uriah the Hittite. And so whether she was already a Hittite, by her marriage to a Hittite, it's as if she then becomes a Gentile. So the genealogy of shows that God is already beginning to bring the very Gentiles in to the very family of God. Faith in Jesus, all throughout the book of Matthew and the New Testament, what we see is not linked to blood lineage, but to faith in Jesus Christ. You enter the kingdom not because of your bloodline, but because of your faith in Jesus. The second way we see that Gentiles are included in the gospel is the gifts of the Magi. And we'll get to this in a couple of weeks. In Matthew 2, we're told the Magi, which are these wise men that come from the east, they come and they worship Jesus. And which is what's really interesting is while the foreigners, the Gentiles, come bow before him, Herod is, and the Jews are plotting to kill Jesus. It's the foreigners who are coming and worshiping him. The confession of the centurion at the very end of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 27, verse 54. Notice that when Jesus is crucified, above all people, who does Matthew emphasize, stands there and proclaims, this is the Son of God, a Gentile, a centurion. Now this last example, we need to keep in mind, son of David, son of Abraham. Jesus is the everlasting king, will be worshiped by the nation. So, so hold both these lenses, son of David, son of Abraham. 
And when we come to the Great Commission, just think about how these two titles are merged right here. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And you know this. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I am the son of David. I have all authority. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Fulfill the promise that was given to Abraham that all the nations will be blessed in the name of Jesus. Do you see how those, these two lenses, son of David, son of Abraham, are combined right here at the Great Commission. We see it in the beginning of the gospel, son of David, son of Abraham, the rightful king of all the nations at the end, the rightful king of all the nations, sending his people out to the nations to proclaim the gospel. Jesus is the everlasting, all-powerful, sovereign, just, and righteous king who commands his disciples, his citizens, to go to the nations and proclaim the gospel. This is why we go. This is why we support missions. This is why, and back in the foyer, you'll see um, 16 or 20 guys listed there under Project 92 that are all in India right now preaching the gospel. This is why we pray for our missionaries in other parts of the world because they're taking this message and they're going to the nations. Whether you're Jew, Gentile, black, white, slave, free, Matthew wants us to know that there is one king. His name is Jesus, and under his name, we are saved. There's no other king that saves us. There's no other king who will reign for eternity. There's no other king who is perfect. There's no other king who is just and righteous. There is no other king who can conquer the sinful kingdoms of the world. Jesus is the king of the world, which is why we proclaim him to the ends of the world. So this genealogy, it's telling us that all of history has been leading up to the coming of this promised king. And over the next few weeks, we're going to especially see how Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy after Old Testament prophecy. That his birth is not random. His life is not random. But it's rooted in all these promises and prophecies of the Old Testament. Jesus is a king like none other. In fact, his genealogy also points to the supreme power and rule of King Jesus. I want you to think about this. As we've already commented, if you look at the genealogy of Jesus, it's not a righteous pedigree. There's a lot of sin. There's a lot of dirt that's in this genealogy. And yet, no sinful man, no evil woman, no adultery, no rape, no foreigner, no wickedness of man, no sexual morality, no pagan nation like Assyria or Babylon, no one and no thing can thwart the purposes and promises of God. Jesus is king. He fulfills the line of Abraham, fulfills the line of David. The prophecies that were made thousands of years earlier, he comes and fulfills. The genealogy testifies to the faithfulness of the unconquerable promises of God. As we're reading this genealogy, we ought to be saying amen after every line because Jesus keeps his word. He's the king who rules and reigns and his promises cannot be thwarted. And if they weren't thwarted in the Old Testament, they won't be thwarted in the New Testament leading up to his return. The genealogy testifies of the unconquerable promises of God. The birth of Jesus has been planned before creation. And this just testifies God is faithful, God is faithful, God is faithful. When you wrestle 
with the faithfulness of God, and you wonder, does God remember me? Does God remember his promises? Does he really work all things for good? Will he complete the work he, came to, he, he began in me? You can come back to genealogies. You probably didn't think that, did you? Come back to genealogies and you say, God is faithful, God is faithful, God is faithful. The sins of humanity, your sins cannot overcome the promises of God. Praise God, right? Otherwise, we're all screwed. If God's promises depend on your perfect actions, we got nothing. But we see here the absolute sovereignty of God over good, over evil, over righteousness, over unrighteousness, over his people and over those who do not believe in him and reject him. And nothing thwarts his promises. Continually, all the way throughout the Old Testament, line after line after line, we come to the birth of Jesus. There's no king like the king, Jesus. This brings us to our last question. Will you believe and bow before King Jesus? That's one thing Matthew wants us to know. In fact, many of you know the end of the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus will talk about a wise person who built his house on the solid ground. And the solid ground is the one who hears and obeys the words of Jesus. They're safe. They're secure. While we live still in an evil world where there are evil kings and kingdoms in a sense, we know that our king reigns supreme and nothing can ultimately take away our salvation. But to hear and reject the words of Jesus is to be like the person who builds his house on, on the sand. And so when the waves come and crash upon the house, the house will be destroyed. And all that the person has will be lost and so will the person. To be a follower of Jesus is not only to know Jesus, but to love Jesus and to obey Jesus. Matthew wants us to know that all throughout the gospel, you cannot believe in Jesus if you also do not bow down before Jesus. And you cannot bow down to Jesus if you do not believe in Jesus. He is king. He has all authority. His command and his rule is good. And it's righteous. And we'll see that his yoke, he calls us to, is light. He has not come to place a burden upon us, but to give grace and strengthen us. Matthew will show that to be a follower of Christ is to bow our knees before him each and every day. And so as we come, we, we see that there's, there's, there's three audiences that Matthew speaks to all the time or that, that Jesus addresses. Number one is the crowds. The crowds are always there. The crowds show up and the crowds, they love Jesus. They love his miracles. They like the ministry of Jesus. They love the miracles of Jesus. They love when he multiplies bread and he feeds them. They love when he raises the dead. They love when he casts out demons and heals the sick. They're all in on Jesus. They really, really enjoy Jesus, but they do not bow before Jesus. They like his benefits. They like the blessings of Jesus, but just not yet. Maybe I'll believe later 
Maybe when I get a little older, I still want to do the things I want to do. Let it be clear that there's no neutral ground. If you don't bow, you do reject Jesus. To not believe in Jesus is to reject Jesus. There's no neutral area. So I ask you, are you in this group? Do you know a lot about Jesus? Do you like being a part of the church and being a part of those who encourage you? But have you believed in Jesus? Do you know that he's king? Do you know that he's the one who has come to die on the cross that you could have forgiveness of sins? Have you believed in him? Have you bowed your knees before him? Then we see there's religious leaders. These are the people who Jesus speaks the harshest words to throughout the entire Gospels. And these, these religious people, they know the Bible really well. In fact, in one sense, we're probably closest to these people. Most likely, you know the Bible fairly well. Most likely, you have 10 Bibles at your home right now. And if anything, you have like 50 of them on your phone. And if you don't, you can download an app, and one app has like 50 of them. And these, these religious leaders, they knew a lot about the Bible, and they were very moral. And they looked very good in front of all the crowds, and the crowds looked up to them and said, wow, those are really moral people. And so they thought they were really good. The problem is their pride made their hearts hard, and they did not see their sin, and they were hardened. And so they did not see their need for a Savior and they did not see their need for a king like Jesus. And so they rejected Jesus. And eventually they would be the very ones to plot against Jesus. So I ask you, are you in this group? Are you very moral? Do you know the commands of Scripture? Have you been a part of maybe the, the church or the religious community for a long time? Do you know that you're a sinner? Do you know that you stand guilty before God? And unless if you believe in his son, Jesus, who conquered the grave and conquered the sin and conquered Satan, unless you believe in him, you will stand guilty before God. Jesus is the king. He's the only one who rescues us. And then there are the disciples. And we think that this is just going to be this amazing group in the New Testament. But these are the ones who do follow Christ. They're the ones who obey Christ. But Jesus often says they have little faith. They're not a perfect group. They're not, they don't know how to always do everything. They continue to sin. They sometimes fight and they squabble. And so Jesus will say, oh, you of little faith. And yet what we learn in Matthew, it's not the quantity of faith that we have, but it's the quality of faith. If you believe in Jesus Christ and your faith be that of a mustard seed, you are saved. Praise God. Do not think that you have to muster up some massive amount of faith. You don't need to know all the ins and outs of the Bible. This is what you need to know. Jesus is king. He's the son of God who came to die on the cross that we could live and have everlasting life. And he reigns right now and for all of eternity. And one day he will return. And at that time he will vanquish all sin and all worldly kingdoms. And only those who believe in him will reign forever with him are you a disciple of Jesus? Have you believed in him? And do you bow before him every day? Not my will, but yours be done. Or as we read in the gospel of John, that I must decrease, so he must 
You remember that? He must increase. Our lives will reflect more and more the rule of Christ. C.S. Lewis once said, when we get to heaven, there'll be at least three surprises. First, we'll be surprised by the people we find there, many of whom we surely had not expected to see. Second, we'll be surprised by the people who are absent. The ones we expected to see might not be there. The third surprise, of course, is that we, there, we are there ourselves. Praise God for his grace. We could talk all about the grace that we also see in this genealogy. As we just saw, all these people are imperfect, but they're brought in to the family of God, not because of their perfections, not because of their righteousness, but by grace. And the reason you are saved is not because of how smart you are, not because of your possessions, not because of your prestige and your status. We're saved by grace. The kingdom of God is characterized by grace. So today, Matthew, in these opening verses, he opens up the treasure chest and he shows us the very first jewels on top. And he says, Jesus is the promised king. He rules the nations forever in perfect righteousness. And so he's, he's inviting us, come join, dig in, Look at the rest of the jewels that are in the gospel of Matthew. And I want to invite you to come and join us as we make our way through the book, that we would know who Jesus is and that we would love him and that we would worship him and that we would bow down before him as the son of David, the son of Abraham, Jesus, the son of God. Bow your heads with me and let's pray. Father, Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you prophesied in the Old Testament that Jesus was coming. We thank you that you are faithful and that you are righteous and no amount of sin or powers or, or anything in the Old Testament could thwart your purposes for you are faithful and you are all powerful. God, we thank you for the sending of your son, Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We recognize that Jesus alone is king. He's the one who saves us from our sins so we could live with you forever in the kingdom of heaven. Father, I pray that every person here would believe in Jesus and they'd bow down before him today. May they know that Jesus is king. He alone is able to save and to rule in perfect righteousness. Father, we praise you for your grace. In your name, Jesus, amen.